As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Hello, and welcome back to the kickoff of season two of the Earth Keepers podcast. I am so excited to be back. Now, if you missed it, I explained in the trailer a few weeks back why I've decided to shift the format of this podcast into seasons and my desire to spend more time going deeper into a subject. And as the shape of the season came together and I began to interview the guests in the season, I found myself being called deeper and deeper onto this path. I've let myself ask bigger questions and sit with the uneasiness of some of the answers or the uneasiness of not having the answers. But I believe the answers are there for us. The earth is willing and waiting for us to ask her, rather than each other, for the wisdom that we seek. The trees and the plants and the fungi have been in partnership with humans on the earth for thousands of years. We may not remember, but they do. And that's what we're going to be talking about this season. Reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships. And in order to do that, we have to begin at another point in time and attempt to reconcile where we've been as humans with where we are today, which is largely devoid of any kind of conscious plant relationships in our collective, other than our obsession with the ones that drive our compulsive consumption, like the coffee plant, tea leaves, wine grapes, or sugar. I think many of us would say that there's at least one of those plants we'd rather not live without. Even if you don't think of them as being plants that we're in a committed relationship with, they may in fact be a plant ally to you. Whether or not it's a healthy relationship is up to you to decide, but I guarantee they have wisdom for you if you ask. Now, before we dive into this discussion, let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and energy of the community you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and the role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join this beautiful community. Now, let's get back to talking about plants. When exactly were plants our everyday allies? The answer depends a bit on where in the world your ancestors were located. But in the generations of humans that lived before the time of Christianity, there really was little separation between humans and nature. 
early humans lived so closely with the mountains, waters, trees, and plants in their communities that, of course, they would receive guidance and counsel from these elders. And while certainly there was plenty of direct communication and prophecy done with these energies, let's take a walk through history and how some of these ideas and beliefs made their way to people around the world before Christianity arrived on the scene with a different set of ideas. Now, keep in mind, this is a mass simplification of history. I couldn't possibly touch on every belief system and religion around the world before the time of Jesus, but this will shed some interesting light on just how our sacred relationship with plants was for thousands of years. Much of the history and research that I'm sharing about in this episode comes from Richard Merrick, the author of The Venus Blueprint, which I thought was a book about the science of sacred spaces when I started reading it. And it was. But in order to explain where the ideas came from that created sacred spaces that were in perfect harmonic resonance, he had to explore what the builders of those temples and churches would have known and believed, and how those beliefs would have reached them in their particular corner of the world. And that begins, more or less, with the Rig Veda. If you're not familiar with the Vedas, they are considered the earliest literary record of Indo-Aryan civilization and are the most sacred books of India. They're the original scriptures of Hindu teachings containing spiritual knowledge encompassing all aspects of life. Now, tradition says that humans did not compose the Vedas, but that God taught the Vedic hymns to the sages, who then handed them down through generations by word of mouth. The formal written documentation of Vedas was done around 1500 BC. The Vedas include four volumes, in which the Rig Veda is one. Each Veda has four parts, including hymns, rituals, theologies, and philosophies. The Rig Veda is a collection of inspired songs, or hymns. It's the oldest book in any Indo-European language and contains the earliest form of all Sanskrit mantras. Some scholars date the Rig Veda as early as 12,000 BC. So, yeah. This information has been in circulation for a long time, and its origin is thought to be Armenia, in what is now northern Turkey. The Sanskrit-speaking people of this region were known as the Aryans, meaning noble. They migrated into Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago, and then west into Ethiopia, possibly sparking the great pyramid-building civilization there. They also moved east across the Indian continent, intermarrying with the Dravidic tribes to become the Indo-Aryan Hindus. From there, they moved south towards the tip of India, where they built more incredible temples, and believed that Sri Lanka was heaven, the sacred land of golden gods. And in this heaven grew a very special mushroom, and the object of their affection, an entheogenic mushroom named Coplandia cyanescens. And hang with me, because this will figure into the story shortly. Now, from India, the Indo-Aryans moved eastward to China, bringing the Rig Veda with them, from which Buddhism evolved. Then, Aryan sailors carried this Vedic cosmology and temple-building tradition to America. Pre-Columbian artifacts in the Americas have clear Vedic, Roman, and Greek influences, 
showing that transatlantic travel and colonization was happening centuries before the Spanish set sail and, quote unquote, discovered America. Now, there's much more detail in the Venus Blueprint book on how the ancestors of many of the European royal families ended up in Armenia, the birthplace of the Rig Veda, before bringing what would be considered civilization to Europe, establishing Roman Catholicism across the continent. But these hymns and ceremonies and philosophies from the Rig Veda had been shared and spread to many of the world's continents before being either integrated or outright rejected by the church. And what's interesting is that a large section of the Rig Veda is devoted to singing the praises of something called Soma, without expressly describing what it was. R. Gordon Wasson, an ethnomycologist who became famous in 1957 when his article about psychedelic mushrooms was published in Life magazine, dedicated many years to researching Soma and ultimately came to the conclusion that Soma was related to the Amanita muscaria mushroom. You know, the one with the red cap with the white dots on it. And we could do an entire season just on the lore and traditions related to that mushroom alone. But the point here is that people have been working with plants to alter or expand their consciousness for tens of thousands of years. Now, just a side note, I have experimented a bit with microdosing Amanita muscaria and feel called to do a larger journey with it this summer with my ancient Scandinavian ancestors who would have been familiar with it and likely did ceremonial work with it. More to come in future episodes, I'm sure. But there is a beautiful medicine keeper for this mushroom who goes by the name Amanita Dreamer on YouTube and Instagram. And she somewhat accidentally discovered that Soma was most likely a yogurt-type drink with a decoction of Amanita muscaria included. I'll add a link in the show notes to her video about Soma if you'd like to learn more. That being said, although Amanita muscaria is found in many locations throughout the world, there are a variety of entheogenic plants that are found in every climate and ecosystem. That is, plants with psychoactive substances used for visionary experiences in ceremony or ritual figured heavily into pre-Christian traditions on every continent, as highly encouraged by the Rig Veda. Throughout history, each culture has used whatever entheogens grew locally to make a communal brew. In Europe, in addition to the Amanita, there was acacia leaves or roots, ergot rye fungus, datura, and mandrake. Specific parts of the plants would be pressed, heated, and blended with grape wine to make the drink, along with other ingredients, including human, animal, or serpent blood to act as a sacrament. The god or spirit of the plant was each culture's green man. Now, the green man is something we're at least vaguely familiar with still today. Richard Merrick explains that he's actually an archetype to represent a long line of masculine and theogenic plant gods. The green man is the son of the sun, bringing enlightenment through the vine and inner solar serpent. And I'll tell you what, the first image I had in my dreams the first night I microdosed Amanita muscaria was of the Ouroboros, the serpent with the tail in its mouth. 
It's like I was stepping into an infinite relationship with the spirit that humanity has had for thousands upon thousands of years. What's even more interesting is that on that same night, after my husband had also had the microdose for the first time, he was shown the number eight in his dreams, which then popped out and showed itself to be the infinity symbol. And when you look up the Ouroboros symbol, it's sometimes shown as a snake in a circle and sometimes as a snake in an infinity symbol. But the symbolism is the same. It's the unity of all things, material and spiritual, which never disappear but continually change form. And this is what I mean about the plants, or in this case, the fungi, remembering their work with humanity. People around the world in wildly different cultures and climates and timelines, all tapping into similar messages and symbols. So let's go back to the green man. The Hebrews, the Norse, Indian, Turkish, Persian, Gaul, German, and Chinese people all had a green man with a name rooted in dias, a very old word meaning sky father and from which we receive the word deity. And if we go back further in history, we find a god named Deus Pita, who was the main solar deity of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. His son was Indra, who in the Rig Veda delights in drinking Soma. So here we are, back to the origins of the green man and his association with an entheogenic beverage. In fact, the land where the Vatican now stands was once a Hindu religious center that existed before the Romans conquered the area. Vatica referred to a temple wine made from a bitter grape that was believed to have been a psychedelic brew made from acacia or Syrian rue, made in vats to drink and commune with their god, Vaticanus, who they believed guarded their garden and the necropolis on the hill. Now, although it may not sound like it at the moment, we're actually not going to discuss much about psychedelic plants for the rest of this season. But I think this historical context is necessary, especially living in the time we do now, where many psychedelics are just illegal, but a general fear of these plants has been planted in our hearts and our minds, at least over the past few generations. And if we want to reclaim our sacred relationship with plants, we need to understand that they aren't just sacred as food and shelter and medicine, but they were sacred because people throughout human history were using them to access different realms of consciousness. This was their religion. Temple and ceremonial wine was historically entheogenic. And these psychedelics were consumed to help access the inner temple, typically associated with the pineal gland. Some researchers go as far to say that Jesus was actually the magic mushroom itself, another green man personification of the sacrament. Early Christians worshipped Jesus in the same way the green man had always been worshipped, by taking a Eucharist they called the blood and body of Christ. If this was actually an entheogenic plant, then they would have accepted him into their heart by eating the sacrament letting the Christ consciousness enter their minds to save them from ignorance and make them born again. So regardless of your personal beliefs about Jesus, it seems that at the very least, consuming sacred plants to ascend to another dimension was one purpose of early religion. 
both before, during, and after the time of Jesus. And look, I've connected with the energy of Jesus in journeys, as I know many of you have. I'm not trying to say whether he was or was not a human who walked the earth. But I also know that energies can come to us in many shapes and forms that we're familiar with to share their particular wisdom and teachings. But it's ultimately just energy. That being said, as Richard Merrick points out in the book, why were there so many green man carvings in Roslyn Chapel if this was a pagan god? Most likely, the Sinclair family practiced some form of entheogenic communion in their chapel. So what happened to these sacred plant practices? It used to be everyone's right and perhaps responsibility to access their inner landscape, leave ordinary reality behind, and ascend to the realm of the gods, where one would experience the spiritual world beyond the physical. This was what it meant to take communion, whereby you would commune with the gods. But as with many traditions, its use was halted by the church. Shared communion had been encouraged in the ancient Egyptian, Greek, and Roman temples. In fact, the ancient temples were built using the mathematics of resonance, astronomy, and sacred geometry that would specifically assist people in reaching higher states of consciousness. They were designed to harmonize the physics of external reality with the metaphysical reality of our inner world. The temples were also created as centers for the study of nature where people observed the sky and created harmonic science, thereby creating a songbook that everyone could sing along to before sending the book around the world. The Rig Veda was meant to harmonize all of human civilization with the sky, making sure we were all singing in key, not just with nature, but with the entire universe. There was an understanding that these transformational plant medicine experiences that people had in a temple built of perfect resonance and in accordance with the mathematics that nature organizes itself around was an important part of the human experience. But eventually, the priestly class restricted entheogen use first in the Hebrew temple and later in the Christian church for their congregations. This eliminated first-hand revelatory experiences between everyday people and sacred plants, making the congregation entirely dependent on the priests for spiritual guidance. Since the priests would have also been taught astronomy and math, this would have made them the most knowledgeable and enlightened members of society, making them the gatekeepers of wisdom on most every important topic, including the afterlife. Ultimately, that inherent connection to nature that all humans knew and understood for thousands of years had to be broken in order to exert control over the people. Long before the days of temples, people would have seen the beauty and repetition of how nature self-organizes through harmonic principles and patterns, namely the golden ratio and Fibonacci sequence. They might not have known what to call it, but they would have seen it all around them in an apple, or a leaf, or a tomato, or a spider web. And they would have seen those shapes of nature reflected in the organs and bones of humans and animals, and known that these shapes in nature, and within us, were one and the same, and that we were all one, a constant of nature. And if all of the answers could be found in nature, what would we need the church for? So, 
Long ago, a very tall wall was built around this beautiful garden that we were once a part of, blocking most everyone out. Only the priests and maybe some philosophers or royalty were allowed to open the door and walk back inside, to reconnect with the remembrance of all that is. And when these plants and fungi began coming back into the awareness of the descendants from those civilizations here in America in the 1960s, they sparked not only a collective remembrance, but also a cultural revolution, and ultimately the war on drugs. The religion of our ancient ancestors was created in partnership with plants and offered direct experience with the natural world as a way to understand our existence and our place in the world. It was replaced by a religion that asked for blind faith and dependence on the prophecy of others who may or may not have been corrupted by money, power, and politics. Now here we all are, a few thousand years later. Most of us living on land our ancestors did not belong to, and divorced from the institution of religion that did not feed our souls or explain well enough for us our place here on earth. Never mind the outright abuse many have suffered in the name of religion generation after generation. And collectively, we've become a lost and empty group. I see it in the mass anxiety in our culture and the need to tune out and deaden that feeling with pharmaceuticals, fake food, TV, social media, overworking, obsession with money, unhealthy relationships, and the list goes on and on. And let's be honest, most of us are more competent at recognizing a celebrity face than we are a mushroom in the woods. And I also see this anxiety manifesting in what we might consider some of the more healthy behaviors when they veer into an obsession with being perfect and good and right. But in the end, all of these obsessions or numbing behaviors are just trying to fill a void. We know there is some puzzle piece missing, but we don't know what it is and we don't know how to find it. Now, the answer may not be entheogens for every single person, but I do know that the answer is within nature. I know it's getting back into a rhythm with all that is, however it is you get yourself there. And I know that in sharing about my own journey with sacred plant medicines, many people have reached out to me to say that they've had similar experiences that they had no interest or desire to work with these plants or fungi until recent years, and that it seemed to drop in out of the blue. Now, in researching this episode, it occurred to me that the first message to work with mushrooms came within a month of reconnecting with my ancient Scandinavian ancestors. I hadn't put that together until now. So know that if you are getting that encouragement, that it's not coming out of the blue. It is your ancestral lineage stepping forward and asking you to join hands with them through this ancient tradition. It's not an easy road to walk in our current culture. I can tell you that much. The more I work with this medicine, the more of a struggle it is to function within our patriarchal, capitalistic society. It's hard to care about money and productivity and achievement when you're in the flow with nature. Meanwhile, the world is still shouting at you about money and productivity and achievement. And you have to keep paying your bills and your taxes. It's a tricky space to exist within. But I think about that first generation of people who were suddenly cut 
off from that wisdom and flow and how sad and disconnected they must have felt. They knew what they were missing. And they may have passed their stories on to their kids or their grandkids, but at some point the stories were lost and those that knew kept it secret. So knowing that we are one of the first generations waking up from that slumber gives me hope. And yeah, it might be frustrating to navigate two worlds at once, but that also means we get to start creating what comes next. And that's what we'll be focusing on here over the next few months. We'll talk a bit more about where we've been in the past, especially in terms of how women have been minimized or erased from their important roles within the ecosystem, and especially plants. But then we'll get into what we can do about it now. I'll be sharing some interviews with guests who I think you're going to find truly inspirational and make you want to get outside and work with plants, not only in your backyard, but also in your community. If you're feeling a bit low about the state of the natural world at the moment, this season is going to be a breath of fresh air, full of examples and suggestions for how to partner with nature to accomplish so much more than we think we can. And it's my deeply held wish and intention that if you let this wisdom from the plants truly sink into you, that you will find more hope and love than you imagined in the world. And that it will begin to fill whatever void you're carrying from our collective disconnection and disenchantment. I scribbled down two quotes in my notebook from interviews you'll hear in the coming weeks that I think say it best. Historian Max Dashu quoted one of her teachers who said, growth in nature is our teacher. And Druid Dana O'Driscoll quoted one of her teachers as saying, nature has no need to speak over us. That is, our teachers are all around us every day, showing us what we need to grow, but they aren't going to shout. They're waiting for us to come to them and see that they are a mirror for us. Towards the end of this season, you'll hear from one of my favorite YouTubers, David from the Weedy Garden. And at the end of his videos, he shares this contemplation about his connection with nature. And I think it's the perfect place to wrap up for this week and also kick off this season. He says, when I die, I'll become earth again. I belong to this earth, and earth should stay with us. A tree is the same as me. When he gets old, he'll die. He'll be dead and burn. He'll leave his ashes behind. The tree becomes earth, just like me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.